Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. It is uh, Saturday, February 9th, 2013. I am your host, Jake. Thanks for joining us. And of course, uh, joining me, as always, is founder of Dose Nation and co-host of the podcast, James Kent. James, how are you this evening? I'm doing great. I'm excited for this interview. As am I. Uh, so why don't we go ahead and uh, introduce tonight's guest, because uh, this, this is going to be really exciting, I think. Um, so uh, Steve Beyer has a doctor has a doctoral degrees in religious studies and in psychology, and has taught at the University of Wisconsin Madison, the University of California Berkeley, and the Graduate Theological Union. He lived for a year and a half in a Tibetan monastery in the Himalayas uh, and led numerous four day and four night solo vision fasts in the deserts of New Mexico. Uh, he also studied wilderness survival among the indigenous peoples of North and South America and studied sacred plant medicine with traditional herbalists in North, in, uh, North and South America. Uh, he is the author, among other books, of Singing to the Plants, A Guide to Mestizo Shamanism in the Upper Amazon. Steve, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. We, uh, we're glad you're here. So first, I, I – and I uh, – I, 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 James and I were talking about this earlier. I want to talk about f- first a little bit about your experience in um, in a Tibetan monastery and how you came to um, you know to find yourself in that place uh, and what it was like being there and living with these monks and sort of your journey through that through that time. Um, this was back in um, 1967, so we're talking. Oh my God. 45 years ago. Um, so this is this is before it's trendy to go and do something like that. I'm this was this was when um, a whole bunch of things were going on. Um, there was a, an active rebellion um, against the Chinese occupation um, in the eastern part of Tibet, the area called Kham. And um, Tibetan refugees had been pouring over the border into India for several years. And at this time, too, there was a, a shooting war going on between India and China over border issues. Uh, it wasn't a big war, but they, they were shooting at each other. And um, nobody knew very much about the Tibetans. Um, the culture was just slowly being revealed as uh, refugees came into India carrying their precious books and manuscripts, uh, many of which had never been known outside of Tibet before. Um, and I was working on my, my PhD in Buddhist studies, and so I had the opportunity to go uh, live and study in the Tibetan monastery that had recently been set up by um, a very charismatic lama, the eighth Kamtral Rinpoche, um, in um, Himachal Pradesh in northwest India. And he had set up a refugee community. He had, um, in effect, carried his entire community from eastern Tibet across Tibet, over the mountains, into India, and he had set up a community uh, that he wanted to mirror the community that they had all come from in Tibet, and he built a monastery. And he, um, uh, he, uh, tra- he, and he was an artist himself, and he trained many of the people to, to make arts, Tibetan arts and crafts, to paint tankas, to make carpets, 
uh, as a way to finance the monastery. And, so this uh, monastery that he was building was this on the uh, the Indian side of the border? This was on the Indian side of the border. At that so time, this was... there was no way to get onto the Tibetan side of the border. It was occupied by the Chinese, as it is now, but the border was basically closed. Nobody this was could a go t- to Tibet. This was a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. Yes. And uh, you went there to uh, help them establish the monastery, no, or to study to- with them. To study with them. Remember, at that time, people knew very little about Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, what had been um, there was uh, an interest in uh, Tibetan translations of Sanskrit texts, but the scholarly interest was primarily in using those Tibetan texts to reconstruct the Sanskrit originals. Um, there had been virtually no work. There had been some some great scholars who had done work, who had been in Tibet. Uh, Giuseppe Tucci, for example, was uh, uh, a very important Italian scholar who had traveled around Tibet and had uh, gathered manuscripts and, and had studied Tibetan art. Um, uh, what period did he? Do, uh, wh- when did he do that? It must have been in the in the um, gosh in the in the fifties and sixties. So when you were with, with living with them, were you uh, engaging in the practices? Were you sitting and meditating or performing the rituals that they performed? Or was I was it... sitting in on the rituals. I was not, in fact, performing them. My interest was, was scholarly. I wanted to find out. Um, my interest has, has remained scholarly as well. I, my interest was in finding out what, Tibetan ritual meditation was like as it was actually practiced. And I mean, by actually practiced, I mean on a day-to-day ritual and ceremonial level. I don't mean necessarily uh, the kinds of meditation that were uh, eventually exported to North America. I mean the kinds of meditation that they did in the morning ritual, and they did special um, ceremonies for uh, averting disease. Um, I wanted to find out how it worked on the on, on the ground. And, what and in many was ways, was... that's the same thing I wanted to do with with Amazonian shamanism. So in Tibetan. Uh, Buddhism, or uh, do they use the meditation bells or the Om chanting, or is it more silent meditation? Oh, it's um, the 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 meditation that they do on on a daily basis, as opposed to the kind of meditation they do in retreat, say with the yogis. Um, it has has drums and trumpets and bells, and it's chanted out loud, so that as you as you chant, ideally. Uh, what you are doing, let me take a step back. All Tibetan ritual and meditation involves at some point visualization. It involves the careful, eidetic construction of an image of a deity. And this is what meditation consists of. And when the, you are reading the texts and chanting, what you are chanting is a meditation um, which is uh, a d- 
detailed description of the appearance and activities of a deity, exactly like you see on a tanka. Um, and describe a tanka for us, for people who don't, a tanka who don't know. tanka is one of those Tibetan paintings, I'm sure everybody who... Right, those maze-like, maze like, <laughs> maze -like, um, almost like carpet paintings, but they're big mazes. Uh, well, there, there are some. Like there mandala. are mandalas. Like mandalas, uh, yeah. But a mandala, really, a mandala in the Tibetan tradition is simply a picture of the palace of the deity you're visualizing. And the reason it looks the way it does is because it's a bird's eye view. You're looking down directly, vertically into it. But there are so also they're, meditate. They're when you meditate, you meditate on it as a real three-dimensional palace within which the deity dwells. And no, the, deity, the more detailed something. your visualization is, the more powerful your meditation. Who? What? What? What is the deity that they're they're trying to summon? Does it depend on what they're trying to accomplish? It depends or? on what they're trying to do. For example. Um, uh, I was focusing on the deity Tara, who is used uh, for long life, who mm -hmm. is used to save you from danger. She's the green goddess, right? She, she is. She comes in in several different colors, but mostly green. Right. When she's the long life Tara, then she's white. Ah. When when she is. Um, when she is being used to bring you uh, wealth or victory or um, domination, she's red. And then she's... Now, these all... These, these come from... The, you can trace these gods back to the Sanskrit, correct? You can is trace that... them back to India, some of them. Mm -hmm. But what is fascinating about Tibetan Buddhism and and what occupied a lot of my attention when I was doing this this work in this monastery um, is that it is the it is where several different traditions come together. There is a very important indigenous Tibetan tradition, often called shamanic. Although hmm. I'm sure you get into a, a big debate over that, but it is it is definitely a shamanic kind of tradition that it, goes way back before Buddhism came to Tibet. Doesn't um, doesn't it involve some aspects of Bonpo? Well, that is the Tibetan term for their indigenous religion. Ah, okay, yeah. Um, and by the time scholars from the West first started seeing it in the 18th century. It had already been living alongside uh, Tibetan Buddhism for a thousand years. So clearly there had been a lot going back and forth between the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and the indigenous Tibetan tradition. And add to that mix, I guess, two more streams. One is Chinese because Chinese culture has profoundly influenced Tibetan culture, as you would mm -hmm. expect. And indeed, if you look at the earliest levels of Tibetan culture, there was, there was a Tibetan Buddhist culture. Um, there was a lot of interchange with China, and especially a lot of interchange with Chinese Chan Zen Buddhism. And there's a lot of people who think that Tibetan Dzogchen and Chinese Chan are very closely related, and I think that there's good reason to think that. And then you add in all of the cultural streams 
that passed through Central Asia on the Silk Road, um, Muslim, uh, indigenous, Chinese, their own unique inner Asian Silk Road culture. Tibet was the crossroads of all of these cultures, and all of them turn up reflected in Tibetan Buddhism. Now, now you particularly I, uh, were interested okay. in this idea of uh, visualizing the uh, the temple. I didn't know anything about it. But well, once you heard about <laughs> I it, I mean, up, you have to really. We're talking 1967. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody really had a very clear idea about how Tibetans actually meditated back then. And the book that I wrote about it, The Cult of Tara, was, I think, one of the first to describe in detail um, what I have come to call a dedic visualization, that is, the creation of a vivid, exact, precise, detailed mental image of the deity, what the deity is wearing, what the deity is holding, all of the surrounding deities, the... the, the um, the throne on which the deity sits, the palace within which all of these deities are located, sometimes scores of them, and all of this being used as a kind of simulacrum for um, for the world of reality, because eventually it all just dissolves into emptiness. Right, so... <laughs> so what did you walk when you walked away from the Tibetan tradition after a year and a half of being there and you were writing this book uh how did how did that translate into your own sense of spirituality and and what you understood about the world uh do you I, your personal spirituality was it was it challenged at that point because or did you just say well that's very fascinating <laughs> I mean I how did you, how did you come away from a lot of it was, you know, wow, that's interesting. Um, I've, I did not come into all of this. And remember, this was 45 years ago. I was young. Right. Um, and I was... I'm trying. I'm trying to articulate. I haven't thought about this in a long time. These are really interesting questions, and I'm trying to. I'm trying to think about it now from the perspective of where well, let me, I let am. Me ask, almost seventy the, years old. Right. Let um, me ask this as a segue. How did your your year and a half in the Tibetan monastery uh, lead to you your survivalist studies and your oh, extended, your extended you know fasts and you know wilderness uh, retreats that you would do? How how did that transition? Happen? Lives. I think are not linear. Oh, okay. Lives tend to go in circles. Remember that in between, um, I, I got my PhD in Buddhist studies and I then went on and I was a professor for 12 years. And mm-hmm. I, I taught at Berkeley, I taught at Madison, I taught at GTU, I taught courses in Buddhism, I taught courses in Tibetan language and literature, I taught courses in uh, research methodology. And after about 12 years of that, I quit. And for 25 years, I was a lawyer. Oh, that's right. I had forgotten that you went into law as well. You don't put that in your bio, though. Um, it's, it should be there somewhere. If it's not, I, maybe because 
I don't know. Like maybe I pulled it <laughs> from the wrong place. It depends whether you got the long bio or the short bio. Or it's the bio that goes with my most recent book or not. So you uh, were a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And you practiced law. What kind of law was it? I was, um, I worked on um, the defense side of civil litigation. I represented many, many large, um, ungrateful and unrepentant corporations. Uh huh. Um, so that didn't, that wasn't jiving. Did that jive with your spiritual outlook as you were doing that? Or was I'm it? I'm not sure I had anything that you would call a spiritual outlook at any point. Hmm. I, I'm not even sure I have what you would call a spiritual outlook now. I have, when I came back from the Tibetan monastery, it was just at the time, um, I had, there were two things that, that really impressed me when I came back. I remember this. I was thinking about this a while ago. Two cultural events gripped me. One was Carlos Castaneda. And sure. I, I don't know how old you are, but you... Uh, no, I remember Carlos Castaneda. And uh, uh, there was something that he had captured about the times. Um, I think that what he wrote was fabricated. Um, yeah, a lot of it turned out to be fiction. But it was wonderful fiction. It was right. it was fiction that captured something that was important to a generation, and so I I I thought a lot about the relationship between what he was describing and the kinds of things I had studied and experienced in the Tibetan monastery. And there was were there a lot anything of correlations there. Was there anything fact, you that, that was when I was out in Berkeley. People tried to put together some kind of a seminar or something where Carlos and I would would be on the same platform and we would talk together. And of course, that never worked out for all kinds of reasons. But um, there was clearly a sense, to me certainly, um, that there was something in common going on. And the second cultural event that gripped me was. Um, Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo. Oh, right. The movie? The movie. The first midnight movie. It's weird, surreal, acid western. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The first acid western, of which Blueberry was the second. Uh, It was um, um, all of this sense of there was something going on at that time with me um, that eventually I circled around and picked up again in the Amazon. And, and that has to do, I think, with not with spirituality, the way people usually talk about it, which, um, I don't know, has become kind of stereotyped and... Uh, and predictable, but it has to do more with ontology. Because sure. when you, we, we're talking in Tibetan Buddhism about a kind of reality which is porous, which is soft, which is manipulable, because the idea, of course, behind a Dedic visualization is that if you can visualize something clearly enough, 
vividly enough so it has sufficient presence and power and force it will be there just like chairs and tables will be there um there so this is, is right it's like a it's like a uh, projecting it into the collective unconsciousness as a stable form that's however that's whatever metaphor right, right. you like and mm-hmm. and this is not a this is not a unique idea you find this in renaissance magic for example uh, the idea that the imagination the term they use um, is is able to manipulate and change reality but what it means in effect as um, Carlos Castaneda wrote about, and as you see in the weird surrealistic images of El Topo, that, that reality is porous, it's malleable. Um, are, you, are you referring to, um, sorry to interrupt, but there was the, no. you, 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 you mentioned the, the you know, you, you, you refer to the West, the, the, the alchemical thing of turning lead into gold. Mm-hmm. There's also, uh, th- there was another interpretation of that that I had um, that I had read, which is uh, which is profoundly spiritual. That it's a Gnostic thing. Um, uh-huh. That the uh, that you know when when alchemists refer to turning lead into gold, they don't mean literally turning the lead into gold, but rather it's uh, a metaphor uh, to keep a certain piece of knowledge alive. Which which is that you know lead is the soul, that, uh, or you know lead is the spirit. And you, you know, you, it's, it's, it's changing that lead, that kind of dull spirit into gold, into a divine, perfect spirit, you know, mm-hmm. or a more perfect spirit. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've heard that. Um, I think as I read um, uh, the people who wrote about Renaissance magic, there was this sense, I think, that um, the imagination had power to change in quotes, reality. Um, and if you look at, I wrote a book called The Cult of Tara, Magic and Ritual in Tibet, where I talk about this a lot. Um, it's so when you say After that... 40 years, the damn book is still in print. Can you, can you believe that? That's, you can still that's get good. it from the University of California Press. That's good. When you say that the Renaissance magicians believe that their, that imagination could, uh, could affect reality... That's that was a pretty radical and heretical notion at that time. They couldn't just come right out and say that. That's why a lot of alchemy is shrouded in these these strange metaphors that need to be untangled to some extent. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but 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 yeah, like like we, Jake and I always have this discussion that you know the greatest scientists of all time in the West they all came out of religious schools. They were all monks, or they were all trained mm-hmm. by monks, or they were all very religious at their core, even up to Einstein. Even even Richard Feynman was religious, and these are people who, you know, cast God out of science. When when you came, how did, how did you come out of being a lawyer and living in that sort of secular world and then get back into you know the, these vision quests sort of experiences that, that that have taken over this latter part of your life. What, well, what, 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 when did that transition happen? Well, it um, you know you don't know what's happening in your life while it's happening. You <laughs> look back and say, "Wow, that that seemed to have a direction, didn't it?" Um, it my interest in I. I had kept up some interest in Tibetan Buddhism while I was a lawyer. It was while I was a lawyer that, as a hobby, 
more or less. I wrote my, my grammar of <laughs> classical Tibetan. I wrote the book, The Classical Tibetan Language, which is a comprehensive grammar of uh, the classical Tibetan language. Mm-hmm. So it's not really spiritual, but it, it kept me in Tibetan culture. Um, right. And at some... Uh, I got interested in wilderness survival primarily as a matter of machismo. You know, drop me in the desert naked with a knife and I will eat lizards and survive. <laughs> um, so you felt you you was wasn't, you know, you didn't you didn't have anything in your life that was was meeting that machismo. You wanted to go out and you had something to prove or you wanted to prove something to yourself. I I can tell you a story. Um, sure, tell a quick story. Yes, please. I, um, I, it is the prerogative of the old to tell stories <laughs> rather than answer questions. Um, <laughs> during this period, I, I uh, wanted to go bow hunting for bear. Wow. Um, and uh, I would go to the archery range, and I, would, I had one of those, you know, futuristic compound bows with the wheels and pulleys and I would uh, fire arrows at targets and um, I was getting pretty good and I wanted to go out bow hunting for bear and I was in discussion with various outfitters who would uh, take you to where bear were and um, I I have three daughters and at this time they were young and uh, uh, they said to me daddy um, why do you want to go kill a bear? Hmm. Good question. And, and it was a good question. And I stopped and I said, well, to show that I can. <laughs> and they looked at me and they said, daddy, that is a really bad reason to kill a bear. <laughs> <laughs> so I never did it. I stopped. Oh, okay. You didn't go full <laughs> Ted Nugent. Yeah, uh, it was uh, so. Um, that was one of the two things my daughters talked me out of. The other was uh, was getting a Harley. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> um, because by that time, my oldest daughter um, was a, um, a medical resident in surgery, and she used to moonlight in the uh, in the emergency room. And I had announced that I was going to. I was at the age where I was going to get myself a Harley. And, and she said to me, Daddy, Too you many what, <laughs> do you know what we call motorcycle riders in the ER? Donors. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't wow. do that either. Okay, well, um, so, so anyway, how did you, it was how? it was it was machismo, and and as I did this, as I studied the the survival of indigenous people in North and South America, um, uh, it became clear to me that there was, I guess, what we can call a spiritual component to the ways in which they could um, prosper, live well. In, in an environment where I required training just to survive. And it became clearer and clearer to me that this involved notions of right relationship um, between members of the community, 
between members of the community and the animal and spirit and plant world that surrounded the community. And when I say animal and plant and spirit, that we're basically all talking about the same thing. Right. Um, and so I started to um, try to figure out experientially what that was like. Um, so I, I started participating in ayahuasca ceremonies in the jungle. I had previously done a lot of survival stuff in the jungle, and I had done things like work with the Rainforest Health Project, because by that time, as part of my wilderness stuff, I had been trained in um, wilderness first response medicine and uh, uh, wilderness trauma treatment, things like that. So I spent. Well, let me time. let me ask you a, a quick question: How sure. much of your your wilderness survival training and ayahuasca training was there ever a transition between wilderness survival is me against the elements? Did it and then it meshed into wilderness survival is more about living in harmony with the elements. I mean, it, I think that's kind of the message that I'm hearing. I think you're through. absolutely right. I, I think there was a transition, and I think I had some teachers who helped me make that transition and to understand that the way in which you, uh, you survive in the wilderness is to work with the wilderness rather than to try to push your way through it and push it out of your way. Um, right. And by the time I was doing my own vision fasts and, and helping uh, put other people up on the hill, helping other people do vision fasts. Um, I think that had become very clear to me. And at this, everything was sort of going on at once. At the same time, I was going down in the jungle and drinking ayahuasca. Um, I was uh, starting to participate in a few peyote ceremonies of the Native American church. I was... Uh, drinking wachuma in Andean Mesa rituals. And um, and you managed to not go crazy during all of this time? No, I, uh, um, <laughs> it was wonderful. Be, and, you know, you're, I, you're I, have, I have been married stuff. to the like same you, woman. Just... I have been married to the same woman for 45 years. So you were grounded pretty, pretty And well. I had three kids uh, who went to medical school and graduate school. I mean, I, uh, I'm, just, I'm a regular guy. I, yeah, you, <laughs> you know, I'm just, uh, I, um, and I, I wrote the ayahuasca stuff was just really important to me in so many ways. Um, not for many of the ways that it's important to people now, because in the last 20 years, the nature of ayahuasca, the ayahuasca meme, has changed dramatically. So what and, was it like when you were first introduced to it? Um, it was, this is the pre-ayahuasca tourism. Uh, well, it was or, the beginnings of ayahuasca tourism. Uh, there were no, people going down there. You were studying mestizo shamanism, so can you give me a quick, What's the difference between mestizo shamanism and, say, indigenous shamanism like Shipipo or Shuar or something that's more? Well, I more, think uh, um, the, I think there is a, a distinction in a number of ways. For example, um, in traditional Shipipo shamanism, um, the patient did not drink ayahuasca. Okay. The shaman drank ayahuasca because the shaman right. had to see where the darts were. Mm -hmm. um, 
And when you say have, darts, you're talking about magical darts that have that have been cast upon them. Right. I'm talking about pathogenic projectiles that throughout the entire upper Amazon are considered to be the single most important cause of disease and trouble. And right. So the, these are the, the mestizo call them verote or yes. that's the old Spanish word for a crossbow bolt. Right. And, uh, but and they, so these, uh, these, these magical darts, well, I think you, uh, uh, you and I always kind of get into a discussion about these darts because it's what I'm most fascinated with. And when you, when, when you actually go into the uh, mythology of the, the people shaman, it's very, it's like, it's, it's like one of the central things. I mean, like you said, they're, they're diagnosing people by looking for dark darts in people's bodies. Right. That they can and, then suck out and then keep and then maybe transform and use against somebody else. The, there are a couple of things you can do when you suck out a dart. Remember that these um, these are not inert objects in the sense right. that they are, they are in some sense alive. Now, would they you say that darts are... have volition? Mm-hmm. They they like blood. Um, and they, it requires tremendous self-control to keep your darts under control. And when you, when you suck out a dart from somebody else, you can either add it to your own dart collection that you keep in the, the phlegm in your chest, or you can throw it back at the, the uh, sorcerer who sent it, or you can try to put it someplace safe. Um, you can cast it away, but there's always a possibility that somebody will walk along and step on it. Sure. Um, among the, um, the yaga, um, the shaman will cast the dart toward the sun, but then it will mm. fall to earth and fall down into the underground realm of the people without an anus. And it that's, a, cause, that's a terrible place to wind up, by that, the way. And it, it causes sickness there. And in um, in retaliation, they will throw up clods of earth uh, huh. where children eat them and get sick. Um, so this is among all the people. There is the there <laughs> is the belief that you you cannot cure one person without harming somebody else. So because it's this balance, you can't just pull out the dart and then make it disappear. It goes right. somewhere else. So let me ask you, and I'll, let's let's. I want to pull this back to the previous discussion. Do these darts? <laughs> well, I, I'm just trying to. I want to try to tie some pieces together. Would you say that these darts exist in the same ontological soft spot that these temples, that the that the Tibetan monks create in their minds exist? Are these things made out of the same sort of material? This imagine this this visualized imagination, this eidetic imagination. Um, or there, or there, it's something else entirely. When what you speak would, what, to people, it, it is absolutely clear that these are material objects. You can spit them out in your hand. You can look at them. They they wiggle around all in right. your hand. So let's you have you them. have you seen anyone produce darts? I have seen all people spit darts. them out on the ground. And what are the, and they're they're actual darts. I didn't get close enough to see. You didn't want to see them because it was dark. Maybe you were hot on ayahuasca. It's not time something and, you want to mess around with. And then, you know, right I, when we talk ontology here, let me give you, let me do it this way. Okay. Um, in European, North American, Western tradition, 
although we shouldn't use the word Western now, we should use the word Northern, right? Right. Um, we, there is this sense that you can put everything in the universe into one of two buckets. And one of the buckets is labeled real, and one right. of the buckets is labeled unreal, imaginary. And whatever you find in the universe, you take a look at it, you put it in one of those two buckets. And the stuff that goes in the bucket that's called unreal or imaginary is unimportant, can be ignored, or can even be pathologized. In right. other words, people who are interested in that bucket have something wrong with them. Right. But what if there are three buckets? one of which is real, one of which is imaginary, and one of which is, oh, I don't know, imaginal, that has some thing in common with each of the two buckets. What if there aren't three buckets, but there are 20 buckets? <laughs> what if there are no buckets at all? And what we have is a world that is miraculous and filled with magic and beauty? What if right now we are already living in the magical forest? Well, now and, that was a very interesting way to dodge the question about whether or not they're real. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, I would challenge the use of the term real. Well, I, 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 I understand. Give me, give I understand. Me your, give me your set well, of criteria for what is going to go in the real bucket, and then I can tell you whether these darts fit that criteria. It's um, it's, it's and really in some the ways they do. They are they are. You can see them. You can see them move in your hand. You can swallow them. They can make you sick. So they are effective. Um, on the other hand, there are some things that they have in common with. Uh, uh, the bucket that is commonly labeled imaginary or unreal. You can throw them toward the sun. So here's, here's my question is, can you take one of these darts, put it in a Ziploc bag and take it back to your lab and examine it under a microscope? Um, that's, how, that's my definition of real. Um, you could take it and put it in a Ziploc bag and Take it back to your lab, but I don't know whether it would still be in the bag when you got there. So this is a question that we had with Hamilton Morris a few a few weeks ago, where he he had many he had this thing with this voodoo shaman where he had he had captured some material that was supposedly sacred and magical, and the next morning it was gone; it had just vanished. I'm not surprised. <laughs> and. Uh, I don't, I don't know how to, you know, how to explain this. This is, you know, the science. This is something that, 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 you know, actively avoids the gaze of scientific scrutiny. So it's not just something that's, that's real or unreal. It's, it's, it's slippery to a point where, um, you know, science doesn't even want to touch it. I mean, and it doesn't want to touch science. Okay. I, I, I think. I mean, because I, I, I've, I've talked to, uh, you know, about, about many people who've gone down, and I've tried to ask them, you know, point blank, what are these darts? Can you get one? Can you bring it back? And everybody has said, you know, either they're so scared of them they don't want to touch or interact with them, or it, it comes down to the point of I just thought it would be wrong to try and capture one, or um, I could. You can buy them. There's a very oh, you can. Game. Oh, there's a market in darts. 
the, the, <laughs> the idea is, for example, um, that um, a shaman's ability to suck out a dart may be limited if it's a dart from a people that live far away. I see. Um, which is a convenient way of explaining why a shaman may have failed to heal somebody. He can say, well, this is a, this is a dart from a people that live in the Andes, and I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, but what shamans want to do is to collect darts from as many different groups as they possibly can, and they will trade darts, they will buy darts, and then put them in their chest to keep. All right, so let me armamentarium. Let's 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 take a side step. Buy darts from the spirits. Let's let's take a side step here and and contrast this whole dart ontology with the type of things that Western tourists or Northern tourists, Gringo tourists, going to an Amazonian shaman, an ayahuasca shaman, is expecting. They're not expecting to find this dart mythology when they go down there. How has the ayahuasca shamanism trade changed um, you know, in the face of ayahuasca tourism? Well, I think the first thing we need to bear in mind is that um, despite the prominence it has to us, um, ayahuasca tourism actually is having very little effect on traditional shamanic practices in the upper Amazon by itself. I, see. I think so traditional it's... shamanic practices in the upper Amazon are under a great deal of cultural pressure and unfortunately may well die out within a generation or two, but it's not because of gringos. The number, think of the number of shamans who have in fact created a practice of ministering to gringo tourists. Um, I bet if you, you could come up with maybe five names of people who have become particularly well-known. I call these guys gringistas. Uh, how many gringistas are there really? Five who are particularly well-known or recommended um, on the various discussion boards or on Facebook. Maybe 15 or 20 at the most. Right. Um, now, there are some who, who come in and, and try it out and may make some money and then go home or may try it out and for some reason don't appeal to gringo tourists and so they, they move back to wherever they came from. But we're talking maybe 15 or 20 uh, shamans in a few places, like especially Iquitos. And then secondarily, places like uh, Pucallpa and Puerto Maldonado. Um, whereas back in the vast jungle of the upper Amazon, there are hundreds, thousands of shamans who are practicing their, their traditional way of healing, uh, who may have a single village that they serve, or who may have regional reputations, which means that they are well known in half a dozen or a dozen villages up and down the rivers in the interior. Um, so let me ask you how in a in a so when a gringo tourist comes down or a gringo student comes down to study shamanism, they're not looking to have black darts pulled out of their body. They're looking for something else. Right. They're looking for 
uh, the kind of transformative epiphany that they have been taught to expect uh, from the kinds of psychoactive materials they're used to. So I and think that they're looking for LSD. But that's that's not something. I mean, so how how does a shaman adapt to that sort of an ayahuasca shaman must get tired of gringos constantly coming to them looking for that quote unquote transformative experience when really all they're interested in doing is, you know, mediating the effect of magical darts. Um, I think we have to go a little more afield to understand this. It's not just the darts, I think. It is the conception within which the darts are important that all sickness, all trouble, all sorrow is essentially a failure of right relationship. Hmm. These darts don't come from nowhere. They are sent by a person who is so resentful who is so angry, who is so envious of the person that he will use magic or hire a sorcerer to inflict a dart on another people, on another person. Um, there is a conception of sickness in the upper Amazon, virtually universal, that all human suffering is due to the intentional act of another person whom the victim has offended in some way. So that every sickness is an indictment of somebody who has failed to maintain the standards of mutuality and generosity and what is encapsulated in the Spanish word confianza. Um, and therefore has so angered somebody, has made somebody else so envious or resentful that this <laughs> sickness is a result. So when we, and this is so different from the, um, uh, the Western idea of sickness uh, that right. it's, mm -hmm. it's hard to translate. And certainly people who come down um, well, there was a certain point in Western history where people were very concerned with curses and witchcraft and people oh, yes. cast spells upon each other's houses or curses upon each other's houses. That's et cetera, right. Et cetera. And, and so, so there was a period of time, not, and not too long ago. sorcery has an important social function. Sorcery is the way in which, or the threat of sorcery, is the way in which people enforce norms of generosity and mutuality. In a community, it's like karma almost. It's it's very much like karma. I think that's a good example. It's it's, it's militarized karma. <laughs> it is what one sociologist has called a weapon of the weak. <laughs> um, one of wow. the things that constrains oppression in a stratified society is the fear of sorcery. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that. Um, uh, keeps people in social relationships with each other, that, that enforces norms of, of generosity and reciprocity, um, is sorcery. Okay, so now, now, sorcery now, can also be socially destructive because you can get into great 
battles, uh, people tossing darts back and forth at each other. But in some ways, the function of the shaman is not just to heal this social breach, but to take on to himself this social conflict. Right. Fashioning of darts, the sending of darts, and, the and in dissolving effect, of darts. Yes, mediating right. this conflict through his own body. Just so as there's, the conflict appears in the bodies of the people who are fighting with each other. So there's, I want to, I, I want to take another sideways jump here because when we're talking about, um, you know, uh, sorcery and you know the, this conception of these darts, I, I, I think a lot about religion and organized religion and the rituals that we come through in uh, in the West and how this is another conversation that you and I have how Catholicism has influenced a lot of ayahuasca cultures in South America and how the Catholic archetypes of Mother Mary and Jesus Christ are invoked in in shamanic ceremonies. Is that mm-hmm. common mostly in, in Mestizo or more urbanized ayahuasca youth, or has that made it all the way upriver? Are there upriver Shipipo shaman who, um, it, who have what, gotten that kind of folk Catholicism as well? It, folk Catholicism has entered into um, both Mestizo and indigenous um, cultures in a very interesting way through the use of magical grimoires. Okay, can you um, explain what that is? Um, these books magical are magic grimoire. spells. Um, like Jake, do you want to pick Solomon. up here? Yeah, um, I'm actually not, not, not familiar with that, so please continue. Yeah, this is interesting. Um, uh, there, there are popular books of magical spells and magical healing uh, recitations that in are... Spanish. In Spanish. In Spanish. And they go back to um, 18th century books of, of magic. And they are very popular. Shamans will often have on their mesa, on their altar, a little book of, of spells, like the book of St. Sebastian and, and books like that. And they are very popular. And they are very popular because they allow you, people believe, to do shamanic things, that is to heal and to cast curses, without having to go through the training of being a shaman. Whoa! And, so it's like drive-through shamanism. You can yes. just go, wow. <laughs> and, and, and that sounds dangerous. Entered, and more like it, drive-by shamanism. <laughs> it has entered, um, and and these books are very popular, and you see them all over. And if you ask shamans why they don't have apprentices, one of the things they will tell you is that they go into town and they go buy these magical books and they don't want to do the diet and the sexual abstinence that you you need to do in order to become a shaman. Right, they buy the magical incantation book and that's it. That's you right. Know, and then, okay, we're going to go home and read this and we're going to play, play a shaman. That's right, for, and for we can do the hours. things the shamans do. And that's in addition to and apart from the fact that um, people, uh, young people, want to go to the city and and get the kinds of things that people who live in the city get. Cars, televisions, stereos. Um, if, if shaman is... And what's interesting, too, these are all very, I think, complex social dynamics going on, but what is interesting, too, is that because of um, 
among other things, the influence of gringo tourists, but I think also just as a matter of cultural pressure, mestizo-style shamanism is spreading at the expense of indigenous-style shamanism. For example, uh, I have to take a step back. Uh, can I tell you sort of another story? Sure. When I say the word Indian, like you know, Native American, I am mm -hmm. sure you get a picture in your mind. And that picture in your mind is somebody sitting on a pony with a feathered headdress on the northern plains carrying a spear, hunting buffalo. In other words, what has happened is that the, northern, the culture of the northern plains, a very short-lived culture, it only lasted about 150 years, has become paradigmatically Indian culture. And that's primarily the result of Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. Okay. But I can, I can see in, that. In the Amazon, one of the things we see happening now is that the Shipibo are becoming paradigmatic ayahuasqueros. I see. And is it because it, of their colorful textiles? I think it's because of their colorful textiles. Yeah. Um, and, and they are becoming paradigmatic Amazonian Indians in the same way Northern Plains peoples became paradigmatic Native Americans. And yet, when these Shipibo healers are, are working with gringos, for the most part, they're not doing Shipibo shamanism at all, they're doing Mestizo shamanism, because they give the bit of the participants. Because oh, so why do the... people go down there? They don't go down there to be healed by a shaman who is drinking ayahuasca. They go down to drink ayahuasca. True. Because that's the experience they want. Now, well, I can't and they, say and they want to that. be. So, so tell me a little bit about how, um, how do you, I mean, so when, when gringos go down there, they have, many of them would, would, would say that they have an existential wound that they need healed. Mm hmm. Or some sort of emptiness or spiritual emptiness in their life that they're seeking to be filled. Do do the mestizo shamanism down there get that that that's what they're coming for? That that's what they're I looking think, for? I think you get a couple of different responses. And also, depending can you touch on? Upon, the, can you on touch upon? Can you touch upon? Um, I think this is something you mentioned to me. How many gringo shaman? I mean, how many gringos go down there that shaman find have in some ways been abused or neglected? in their life. All right, let me, let me, I'll, I'll remind me to come back to that. Okay. Um, there are shamans who are willing to do anything gringos want for money. Mm -hmm. And many, I, and remember that there, a lot of people, I, I don't, I'm not going to name who is who, largely because I don't know. There are people there who, who used to work as, as tourist guides, and now they, they say that they're shamans, and they, they go to the Belen market, and they buy a bottle of ayahuasca, and they've learned a few ikaros they can sing, and they put on ayahuasca ceremonies. And that's probably um, good enough for most people. That's probably good enough for most people. Uh, there are shamans who are genuine shamans who really want to help people, and who are actively trying to translate their own 
ideas of, of sickness and healing into the language that they think the gringos will understand. They are trying to translate it into gringo language. So they're building a bridge. Of so they are building ideology. a bridge and they, are, they use the new age terminology that the gringos bring with them as a way to try and help gringos, not necessarily teach them anything about Amazonian culture or their own vision of what the cosmos is like or their own ideas of sickness and healing, but they want to help people get better so they will use the language that the gringos bring with them. Right. Okay. And then in between these, there, there are people who may be more or less um, generous or cynical um, who, who figure, who, who want to use the, the, uh, who will pick up the language, who may even say, hey, this is a, this is a, a good way of expressing something that I have sort of felt about this. So, so there's a lot of cultural interchange going on on all different levels. Um, but what the gringos who go down there do not get most of the time, there are some, I think, very honorable exceptions, including my own teacher, Dona Roberto. Um, mm-hmm. They do not get the indigenous Upper Amazonian ideas of what sickness and healing are really all about because they don't ask. Right. They just want the transformative experience and the, the vision quest, for lack of a better right. term. And... Um, you know, who the knows, going to the know, Amazon and the experience seems to be enough of a enough of a kick to the psyche itself that 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 sort of gives people the spiritual experience that they're looking for. But it what is about my, this? It is my belief that the spirits meet people where they are, and certainly not where I think they ought to be. Right. You don't need to go to the Amazon to meet. I to meet I think spirits. that if somebody goes to the Amazon. Um, the spirits are there and will do what they think is right for that person. And um, I, my motivation, well, my teacher's motivation, Don Roberto, when he was young, he went and drank ayahuasca with his uncle. He had no idea he wanted to be a shaman. Mm-hmm. He drank ayahuasca and he thought, basically, hey, this is pretty neat. I can see things I didn't see before. And so he kept drinking, and eventually it became clear to his uncle, who was his teacher, that he was, in fact, a, a, a healer. He had a talent for this. Um, my motivation and it's, and in it's drinking not ayahuasca was primarily curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, I am in absolutely no position to say that somebody's motivation is, is better or worse than somebody else's. People go down for all kinds of reasons, and the spirits meet them. And the spirits will lead them where the spirits want them to go. And it may be that somebody will go down there and drink ayahuasca, and not much will happen. And the person will come away saying, well, that was a waste of money. And then in six months or a year, find that there are, that the spirits have been working on him in ways that are entirely unexpected and unanticipated. Um, it may be that the, the sacred plants will work on people in plant time, not in human time. Right. And grow slowly rather than with a, a you know, a trans, 
formative epiphany that we are in such a hurry to have. So what about this? What about this? Um, this notion of of uh, gringo tourists and uh, you know abuse or childhood abuse or childhood neglect. Well, it was, it was uh, growing up without a without a parent or growing up in a in a fractured family. Um, it was something Don Roberto said to me that I thought was very interesting. He said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he 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 works with a lot of gringos and. He was he was surprised at how many of them said that they were abused as children. He said, "We Peruvians don't abuse our children. We love our children." So he was because we bring our cultural ideas of what causes sickness, and part of our cultural approach to sickness is this kind of Freudian view that we have repressed traumatic childhood experiences and that this is what causes our problems now. This is a kind of Freudianism that has entered into the, the, the cultural mainstream of the West. The idea, and it, 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 it involves all of these things with suppressed memories, with, with the idea that you can be abused as a child and then forget about it. And then in the course of therapy, you have an epiphany. You have a transformational epiphany. You say, oh, my God, yes, that's why I am the way I am. And this is very much in the mainstream of Western popular psychological thought, this idea that the reason you have problems is because you were somehow abused as a child, that you are suffering Or suffered a, a trauma, right. A trauma, exactly. And that every person suffers these traumas. That's uh, right, and that's why right, we're all right, messed right. up. And so I think he was responding to this cultural idea that was expressed by people saying when they drank ayahuasca, now I remember, you know, how terrible my father was to me and he used to beat me or how my mother never gave me love or how my father was always busy working and never had time for me. And he just was responding to that. But what he was responding to, I think, interestingly, was not necessarily the fact that people had been abused, but to this cultural, ideological explanation of why we are the way we are and Mm -hmm. the need for some kind of an epiphany to straighten it all out. Because if you think of popular movies that are based on popular Freudianism, it's always the repressed memory comes out and the person is healed. The person who limps remembers that he ran away during the course of the battle and suddenly he's healed. He can walk again. Right, because his cowardice has been faced Mm -hmm. head on. This is uh, is very much part of our culture and and it, it, it clashes head on with a very different concept of sickness and healing in the upper Amazon, which is that um, sicknesses due to a failure of right relationship. Well, it's almost a similar theme. I mean, a failure of right relationship could be a kind of abuse or neglect within the family um, that's, that's lingered. The difference is, I think, that for gringos, you are the victim. Right. Whereas in the upper Amazon, you are the perpetrator. You, you, have, you have failed to maintain right relationships, and that's why you're sick. Hmm. 
That's a pretty interesting concept of sickness, I have to say. Um, yeah, and I think when um, it is it is fascinating to watch. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, if you go to Pinterest, do you know Pinterest? Usually it's for interior yes. decorating ideas and, and recipes, but I have a board on, on Pinterest on ayahuasca where I have put a whole big selection of materials from all around the web on the remarkable penetration of the ayahuasca meme into Western culture. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's going crazy right now. And there's just lots of stuff, music, movies, um, newspaper articles, all about ayahuasca and all assimilating it into pre-existing ideas. And sure. I, it's, it's very different, I think, from, from the way it works in the Amazon. Now, I, and, that, that is not necessarily intended as a criticism. What it is intended as is um, an observation. And when I put on my anthropology hat, I can be fascinated by this um, kind of cultural interchange. Um, and, and but how I am you... not persuaded that ayahuasca is going to change the world, as some people are. If there is a, 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 shaman, a shamanic ontology, a, a place where you know these spirits exist and they they perform what's more or less magic, mm-hmm. how does how does the influence of a bunch of say college aged gringos in in America experimenting with ayahuasca affect the ontology of the indigenous shaman in the upper Amazon? Do they feel that effect? Do they feel it slipping away from them? Or to them is it... I mean, you said that their their cultures are pretty threatened anyway at the moment. Yes, and I think what 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 is threatening is the... And this is... You hear this a lot, is the lack of apprentices. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to become... No young person wants to become a shaman anymore for all kinds of reasons. One is... No, it, young, no young person in the Amazon. In the but, Amazon but you would have, you would have a, a bunch of You would have a bunch of white kids with dreadlocks going down there to be... <laughs> Some of whom um, do um, practice as, as shamans. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, are they actually looking for apprentices from gringos now? Or is that... Do they understand that that's happening? That there's this revival going on? I in- think how many how many are there? Three or four at the most. I can think of there's Hamilton Souther. There's um, what's it? I, you know, there there is there are what four or five at the most gringos, and there, and again there is there is a way that happens, and it's really interesting. Again, as a as a matter of culture. Um. Somebody goes down to the Amazon and drinks ayahuasca and and has this experience or a series of experiences and, and may even have felt before going down there that he was called to be a shaman. But at some point this call occurs and he apprentices with his shaman and then being a Westerner will will set up a retreat center for his shaman and will become the shaman's manager slash apprentice. Right. Set up a website 
and will start inviting other gringos down um, to work this, with his shaman. This reminds me of the Native American church where that performed peyote rituals. Uh, I actually went to a few Native American uh, church peyote rituals, and it was probably three quarters or more white people. And they were telling me that the that the church was basically going to dissolve, that there were not going to be any more churches because there weren't enough people to carry on the tradition until white people got interested in it and wanted to join the church and wanted to be part of the peyote ceremonies and the circles. And um, it was very strange that I was going to these Native American, quote-unquote Native American church rituals that were, you know, dominated 75-80% by, by white people. But Can you see that happen? We have we have a cultural myth here. I don't know right. what the facts are. It's uh, what you have described may be true for a couple of of Native American church meetings. Um, well, yes, certainly uh, not for for most of them on the reservation. But what we have here is this cultural myth of the the white person who goes into an indigenous culture and is recognized as a great healer and becomes a leader among the indigenous people. And, and, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen and, that movie. And uh, um, it's, I, we could probably sit here and list at least a dozen movies like that. Um, uh, what's that? Uh, now it's not coming to me. Um, and even things like um, uh, the uh, Maurice Sendak book, Where the Wild Things Are. Sure. That same well, I was the thinking, kid goes I was among the wild of, things and becomes their king. Right. I was um, thinking the of James goes and Avatar meets, or Dances with Wolves. He dances with wolves. That's it. Or, or Avatar. Even, right. Yeah, Avatar. Right. The classic. Even Carlos <laughs> Castaneda. Oh, Although course, he, right. he varies this in another sort of archetypal theme of, you know, uh, the, the, the stupid gringo who is laughed at by the teacher, but who masters the, the culture. But this idea that there are selected white people who are recognized as special by indigenous dark-skinned people, um, uh, and becomes their leader and and uh, and somehow saves them it seems to me is embodied here too it's it's as if you know these indians don't know how to preserve their own culture until white people come along and that's a white cultural myth that has nothing to do with the ways in which actual native americans view their own culture so what is the uh, what do you think the future is of both indigenous ayahuasca use and expanded ayahuasca use in in uh, sort of modernized culture? Because it is expanding. Do you think it's going to be adopted into religion in modern culture the way it is in South America? No. I mean, Americans yeah. have a very very short attention span. And I think that in three or four years, uh, ayahuasca will have gone the way of um, other fads. And Remote viewing? Uh, yes, 
or whatever. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to add that in there, James. I just had a feeling. <laughs> I, had a, I had an intrinsic feeling that that was going to come up. And I will make you a bet. I, I know what the next big thing is going to be. So if you want to invest, here's, here's, my, here's what I – I think Iboga is going to be the next big thing. It's coming already. Oh yeah, well it's been around for a while. Why do you? Yeah, think but it's, it's going to take off. Big? It's going to. I mean, people are going to get bored with ayahuasca. Remember that ayahuasca has now become a trope for the transgressive, the edgy, uh, the the totally hip. Um, I have a search set up on on Twitter so that I get every tweet. That has the word ayahuasca in it, so I am, oh, okay. right I am okay. able to to follow the the cultural meme about as well as you can, and there is no doubt that ayahuasca has now and there's lots of material on my Pinterest board on ayahuasca where ayahuasca has become um, the trope for the the transgressive, the edgy, the hip, and at some point, like a popular restaurant. Too many people will know about it, and it will no longer be hip and transgressive, and then people will move on to the next thing. That's how our culture works. Wow. So you have, besides your Pinterest page, you, uh, you have singingtotheplants.com. I have my you, blog. Where, where I you blog, blog at. Yes. You've got the Singing to the Plants Facebook page, yes. which there's always, good news. there's always well-informed news on that page. Um, you also have a book that you're writing. It's the uh, the white haired man. Is that it? Yes, I'm writing a novel that has absolutely nothing to do with ayahuasca. Right, but it's the white haired man at blogspot.com. No, so, it's, it is um, the white haired man dot blogspot dot com. So I am right. and I'm posting it a chapter at a time as I write it. Yeah, and um, you also have what? What was your book on on Tibetan Buddhism? Um, that we mentioned earlier? I have, let's see, I've, the first book is The Cult of Tara, T-A-R-A, right, and Ritual in Tibet. Then there's an out-of-print book called The Buddhist Experience. And then, then there is right. the book The Classical Tibetan Language. Um, and there is now Singing to the Plants, A Guide to Mestizo Shamanism in the Upper Amazon. Available which for is, 20 bucks on Amazon. Everybody was listening. Which is great, by the way. It's, um, you know, usually when you read books about um, ayahuasca in, in South America or the Amazon, it's an account of one person's spiritual journey or journey through a lot of different uh, teachers. This book, Singing to the Plants, actually gives you very academic information about what the ritual is all about and how the shaman practices, and it's very informative, and I think probably one of the most comprehensive and informative books on the subject that I've read. So well, thank anybody you who's much. interested in ayahuasca in any way, should definitely that's the first book that you should check out. Because and it's, it's available me, on Kindle if you have this, right. this pressing need to read it immediately. <laughs> Yeah, to me, it is the source book. It is where people should look first to get answers about ayahuasca, and then and then read everything else, and then read everything else. Robert Tyndall is also very good, and Rock Razam's book is very good. They're all very good, but yours is just it's it's like it's it's like the it has all of the information in it. Well, thank you, thank you very much, and and yeah, people should take a look at my uh, website, singingtotheplants.com, and. Join the discussion on the Facebook Singing to the Plants page. We have some really interesting debates there sometimes. 
And uh, please check out my novel. Like I say, it, it really it has to do with um, sacred justice. Interesting. Uh, rather than with ayahuasca. So um, I would be very happy for people to take a look at it. And then please, on my uh, profile page on Facebook, post comments or send me messages. I would love some feedback. Great. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our program here. Excuse me. Ah. Sorry about that, everybody. Well, it's always a great pleasure, and, and uh, we've touched on many things, and I, I appreciate your, uh, your question. I had a wonderful time, and I want to do it again. Absolutely. Yeah, we will do yeah, it again. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's plenty of material to talk about that oh, we yes. didn't get to. So, well, ladies we'll do and it again. <clears throat> well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake, and of course, uh, James Kent, founder and co-host of Dose Nation, is uh, with me as always. Uh, James, pleasure uh, speaking with you again as always. And Steve, thank you again for coming on the program. You're very welcome. It's been very interesting. So just stay with us until uh, after we end the program. Uh, Remember to catch us uh, next week at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. We are uh, live here Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Make sure you check that out, our Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Dose Nation. And um, I think the Twitter is the same thing, twitter.com forward slash DoseNation. Is that right, James? Yes, it is. Okay. Or DoseNation.com. Yes. Take it everywhere. Yes, and you can find uh, uh, this. That's where this episode will be uploaded. And uh, that's right. where you can find all of our other uh, uploaded podcasts. So make sure you check that out. Well, thanks for joining us. Have a good night, and we'll see you all next week. Um, and James, if I let's see, um, if I have it correct, who is our guest next week? Just, just so we can announce it. I think we're going to have Ramez Nam. Yes. It's a uh, noted author, writer, transhumanist. Uh, we're going to be talking about brain-computer interfaces and uh, science fiction turning into reality in our near future. All right. Well, great stuff. Make sure you tune in next Saturday at 5 p.m. Thanks, everybody, and have a fantastic evening.